Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a surgeon talks about the rare adrenal gland tumor known as pheochromocytoma. Pheochromocytoma is a tumor of the adrenal gland. Um, they can be benign, and most of the time they are, or, or cancerous. But the reason that they're all treated is that they secrete hormones inappropriately. A nurse and an occupational therapist describe their important roles in the care of patients who've had a stroke. Waking up on the next day is a good way to put it because they're now uh, left with this, this stroke that has changed their life and, and really recognizing how their life will be different is the first step in recovery. And a child and adolescent psychologist talks about teaching social and coping skills. We engage in sort of activities that are basically more hands-on, so we'll engage in sort of game-like activities that, that help children learn those skills. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore how nurses and occupational therapists help patients recover from stroke. Then, we'll hear about teaching social and coping skills to children and adolescents. But first, a surgeon talks about the rare adrenal gland tumor known as pheochromocytoma. Headaches, sweating, rapid heartbeat, and high blood pressure, these are common symptoms of pheochromocytoma. Here to talk about this rare disorder is Dr. Jesse Gutnick, an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Gutnick. Good morning. Let's start with the definition of pheochromocytoma. Well, pheochromocytoma is a tumor of the adrenal gland. Um, they can be benign, and most of the time they are, or, or cancerous, but the reason that they're all treated is that they secrete hormones inappropriately, which cause those symptoms that you described and other health-related problems, most related to, to really severe blood pressure. So the, uh, the adrenal glands, those are on the kidneys, right? So they're above the kidney, and they're connected to the nervous system. They're sort of a gland extension of the nervous system, and normally they secrete hormones like adrenaline. Um, but when they're a pro when the the reason that one of the reasons these tumors are a problem is they can secrete that inappropriately or at times that it's not needed and at levels that are much much higher than they would secrete naturally or normally. Is it just um, adrenaline or are there other hormones that they might secrete? It's yeah. adrenaline or other hormones that um, are related to adrenaline, depending okay. on the tumor. Um, Sometimes they secrete that final product, or sometimes they secrete other hormones that are in the chemical process to make that. But they don't, because they're a tumor, they may not secrete that because they aren't processing things normally. Okay. And is this something that potentially, does it affect men and women the same? Does, is it an adult or children? Who's it's, affected by it's this? It's mostly adults. Children have other tumors of the adrenal gland. But pheochromocytoma would be something that would maybe you would become aware of, twenties, thirties, forties. Yeah, generally as an adult. Okay. There, there are some people that can get them younger, um, if they have a familial genetic syndrome, that causes pheochromocytomas or other um, endocrine tumors, um, and so actually part of the workup for these is checking for those syndromes because sometimes the person that has one can be the first person in their family to get that mutation. So there's a genetic cause. There can be. There can be. Uh, do we know of other causes or what makes a person develop these tumors? Luck. Really? Bad luck? <laughs> Bad luck. Okay. Well, let's talk about the symptoms. How do people find out or become aware that they've got this? Um, I listed, you know, headaches, sweating, rapid heartbeat, high blood pressure, but those are kind of those could go with a lot of different things. So there's really two ways that people come to the attention of a physician or a surgeon that takes care of this. The first is those symptoms that you have, and it's sort of on a recurrent basis, usually happens in spells where they feel fine and then have those symptoms on an intermittent basis, and their physician identifies that. The other way is that they can be seen on a CT scan, and so 
someone might have gotten a CT scan for some other reason. Let's say, for example, they got in a car accident and they got a CT scan in the emergency department and they see one of these. Usually those are smaller and they're secreting less hormones, so people have less symptoms. But they kind of come to our attention in both ways. Just as an accidental discovery. Yeah, and then and then when you go back and ask somebody, you talk to them and they say, yes, I have been feeling those things, but I thought it was severe nerves or something else like that. Typically, those are smaller tumors, and typically they're secreting less of the hormone than the ones where people come to your attention from the symptoms. But as you can imagine, it can go both ways. So you use the word spell. So this is like something that could happen. Um, it happens on and off. On and off. Yeah. What are some other uh, symptoms, the headaches, the sweating, rapid heartbeat, uh, high blood pressure, which a person may not know they've, they've got, but... Are there other things, uh, symptoms that a person could be aware of? Those are the main ones. Okay. And it's not something to be looking out for in the average day. It's more something that if you're feeling that way over and over, something to talk to your physician about. All right. Why is uh, pheochromocytoma, why is it a problem? What, what makes it dangerous? So pheochromocytoma cause, can cause significant health problems, primarily related to that severe blood pressure related to a lot of adrenaline. If you can think about it, um, we most people that are not in medicine think of adrenaline as that flight or flight type right. hormone. That it's a good thing that helps you get through some. If you're being chased by a bear, sure. Um, but it also is secreted on a regular basis um, to do other endocrinologic management of your body. Um, and so when it's being inappropriately secreted, when you don't need to be running away from a bear, as you uh, gave the example of, it's unhealthy and cause severe blood pressure, the kind that you can give you strokes and other types of heart and vascular problems, among other things. So it stresses the body exactly. more than it should be, like in an ongoing way. Exactly. Okay. Well, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jesse Gutnick. He's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate, and we're talking about how he takes care of people with pheochromocytoma, which is a rare, right? This is a pretty rare disorder. They are quite rare. Tumors on the um, adrenal glands. Um, now, if you, if you have a tumor on one adrenal gland, does that because you have two of these, right? Two adrenal glands. You have two adrenal glands. They live. Both of them live just above each kidney. If one's affected, will the other one necessarily be? So generally not. Um, you can get them in both adrenal glands, but again, that is with some of those rare genetic disorders that we mentioned earlier, where you get them on either one. Or if, certainly if you saw that, you would know that that person had one of those and, and you'd need to test for it. All right. Well, I want to ask you to sort of walk me through, if I'm newly discovered to have this tumor on my adrenal gland, what are some of the things that you would talk with me about at, a, at our first visit? What would be um, your recommended treatment options? Well, so there's really two, like we talked about earlier, there's two ways that these kinds of things come to our attention. The first is if you're coming in for symptoms, and the second is if you come in with an incidental finding on a CT scan or other imaging tests. Okay. And the work, the workups are kind of the same. And it's a biochemical diagnosis process where you take blood and urine from the patient to measure the hormonal levels um, to test for the hormones that are causing this. If you're having the symptoms, you're testing for the hormones to see if these symptoms are caused by a pheochromocytoma or if they're caused by other potential causes of spells of, of this nature. Do you have to get the blood test or the urine test during a spell? You don't need to get it during a spell because even though the hormones that give you those symptoms are secreted intermittently, there are some other byproduct hormones that are secreted on a continuous basis that you can measure for in the blood and the urine. And so fortunately, over the, in the more recent times, we've identified those and can measure them in a clinical laboratory. All right. Which has really aided the diagnosis compared to many years ago. Okay. Because b- before you had that, you sort of had to go on the symptoms to determine whether that's what it was, right? If you will go back long enough, yes. All right. 
once you go through the um, blood work and the um, urine test and you're sure that that's what this is, tumors on the adrenal gland, tumor or tumors on the adrenal gland, what, um, what do you have to do for management? So there's two steps to the treatment. The first is blocking those hormones from affecting your body. And that's done using medications. And that's done to prepare you for surgery to remove this tumor because there's no good long-term medical treatment for it. You can just block these hormones, but that's not a permanent solution to this. And so we do that to do two things. The first is to let your body rehydrate itself because part of these is you get very dehydrated over time. And so that takes several weeks. The second is at the time of surgery, just by touching the gland, it can make it secrete excess hormone. And so by getting a good blockage, it prevents blood pressure spikes and drops during the operation and after the operation. So the blocking process takes about three weeks to a month to prepare for surgery. Okay. But surgery is inevitable. As long as someone's healthy enough to undergo surgery. But there's no non-surgical treatment. You can only block the hormone. You mentioned the need for hydration during that time or rehydration. Is there anything else that a person does um, in terms of diet maybe to prepare for surgery? Yeah, it's the only time a doctor will ever tell you to eat lots of salt because that salt helps you rehydrate. Okay. Because that salt makes you thirsty and helps you keep bringing water into your system. So I think it's the only time a doctor will tell you to eat lots of potato chips. (laughs) Are the uh, tumors ever found to be cancerous? They can be occasionally, but most of them are not. And do do you know that before you remove them, or do you only find that out after it's sent to the lab? Um, You can know it beforehand if it looks a certain way on the imaging test, but for the most part, it is something that's identified on when the pathologist looks at it under the microscope. Well, let me uh, have you walk us through what the surgery's like. If we've gone three or four weeks and we've done the eating extra salt and rehydrating, what do we look forward to? Do we come in the the morning of surgery? For most people, would come in the morning of surgery. And the vast majority of these can be done using minimally invasive surgery. Um, if, if If it's that rare case where it appears to be a tumor that's growing into other structures, um if it was a malignant one and it was obvious on the imaging that it was growing into other structures, that would be one that would be approached in an old-fashioned sort of open fashion. Um, but the vast majority of these are treated lap- laparoscopically. Now, if the kidney's sort of in, in the back of your body, right? Correct. So do you cut into the person on the back? There's a lot of different ways of approaching it because it does live sort of in the back. Usually it's from the... It's like, as I said, it's done using a minimally invasive techniques, usually with three or four small incisions. And that is typically done from the back or from the side, just depending on how the particular person's anatomy is. How big do these tumors get? They can be anything from a centimeter to fairly large in some of the cancerous ones. Are they ever big enough that a person can sort of feel it by pressing on their... No. No, they don't get that big. Well, it's not how big they are if you if one of these maybe was on your arm underneath the skin it was a centimeter of course you'd feel it but because of where they're located you just wouldn't feel where they are okay now once it's removed and it minimally invasive typically um, minimally invasive surgeries patients go home that night right Um, patients definitely stay afterwards because you need to very carefully monitor their blood pressure as you can imagine if you have a tumor that's making a hormone that keeps your blood pressure way, way, way up. Afterwards, it can sometimes be a little bit low. So everybody's certainly monitored overnight um, to make sure that they're adjusting well to not having that excess hormone. What are the chances uh, after you've removed a tumor that it'll grow back again? If, If you're not somebody with a genetic syndrome that would make you grow these on a, on a, a more frequent basis, it really shouldn't come back unless it's a cancerous one. But if you've had the genetic testing and you know that you're inclined, 
it might then you it might de- develop then others. It entirely depends on exactly what type of genetic um, syndrome you have. They all carry a very different a level of risk. Does someone with um, pheochromocytoma do they have limitations on their activities? I mean, certainly when they're recovering from surgery, they probably have restrictions. Right? Yeah, before act, before surgery, we ask people to not do anything too strenuous, just to not cr- provoke a secretion spell. But afterwards, after you recover, there's absolutely no limitations. And if a man or woman has pheochromocytoma and it's not the genetic kind, what are the chances that they'll have a child who would also develop it? So the chances are no higher. If they don't have a genetic syndrome, the chances are no higher than the average person walking down the street. But if they do have a genetic syndrome... Then it totally depends on the genetic syndrome. Some... um, the nice thing is that the genetic testing has become so specific that once you identify what type it is, you can usually give a very good estimation of the chances. But there's so many different ones with so many different levels of risk. It, w- it just depends. Is this uh, on the radar of primary care providers? If a patient comes in and says, you know, I, I get headaches and I'm, I break out in sweats and my heart feels like it's racing. Do, is pheochromocytoma on their radar as a possibility? I think it depends on, uh, like with most things that are very rare, it depends on the physician um, and what their interests are. So you can't know in detail about every rare thing, but um, I think somebody that's a good clinician would certainly um, would, should raise their antennas if they're having, hearing these kinds of things. The other thing to know is that there's other syndromes that can cause similar um, symptoms that are other thing that are caused by other things, and so I think that role of that person would be more to have their antennas raised than to say this is definitely it. Right. Well, this has been very interesting. Thank you so much for the information. My guest has been surgeon Dr. Jesse Gutnick. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show. HealthLink on air. Coming up next, the role of nurses and occupational therapists in stroke care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A person recovering from stroke will rely on the care of multiple health professionals, including two which we have represented today. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio are nurse Josh Onion and occupational therapist Jennifer Speaker. They're both part of the stroke team at Upstate University Hospital, and I thank you both for being here. Thank you. You're, now, you focus on what you call post-acute care, so... We're going to talk about after the patient has been taken care of in the emergency room, I don't hours later, basically. Yeah. When, when do you come into the picture? So my role, I'm the stroke program coordinator at Upstate. I'm a stroke nurse, and I've been uh, with stroke patients for about ten years now. So I've really seen a lot change in stroke care, and this is really an exciting time with stroke. Um, unfortunately. A lot of people are having strokes in our community, but we want to make sure we're staying on top of the best way to treat them. And like you said, Amber, post-acute stroke treatment is the new highlight with stroke care. So what happens after you leave the hospital? Uh, How are you different and how are we going to help you uh, outside of our walls? So obviously, we need to make sure patients are aware of what a stroke looks like. We want to make sure they come into the hospital if they recognize stroke, if they're having that. And the acronym for that is to think fast. So any facial droop arm weakness, speech trouble, it's time to call 911. So FAST is an acronym to remember how to recognize a stroke. Uh, you want to come into a stroke center and get treated as fast as you can. Uh, the quicker and, you get and that, in... Let me just interrupt. That's important for young adults all the way up, right? Oh, yes. So. Yep. We uh, there's uh, Stroke doesn't discriminate by age, sex, or race. It happens to a lot of us. It happen, could happen to any of us at any point. Uh, sleeping or awake. It does, just happens all the time. And I've talked to a lot of stroke survivors who are healthy, were healthy, had nothing seemingly wrong with them before they had a stroke. So can affect 
Sure. Um, there, there's a lot of things that we don't, uh, when we look in the mirror or look at our cholesterol or blood pressure, they might be completely normal, but there might be something hiding in there that's going to cause a stroke. And we're finding out a lot of patients have, um, you know, atrial fibrillation where their heart beats a little bit differently occasionally. And that one irregular heartbeat could be enough just to send a clot or thrombus up to someone's head and cause a stroke. So it could only take one, one time of that heart beating, one wrong beat could really cause this problem. But uh, recognition of what a stroke looks like and quick treatment uh, is essential to your recovery, but we're going to talk about um, beyond that emergency room care, what that looks like, you know, the day after you have a stroke and what to expect and the normal gambit of stroke care after that first 24 hours, I'd say. So we're talking about a patient who sort of wakes up in the neuro ICU on the ninth floor um, after having a stroke the night or day before. What What is that like for them? Both of you've talk to patients in that setting, right? Yeah. When you say wake up, I think that's a good way to put it because we find talking to patients that a lot of them don't recall that first day. It's so much for them and the brain does a nice job at processing out those scary things. So waking up on the next day is a good way to put it because they're now uh, left with this this stroke that has changed their life and, and really recognizing how their life will be different is the first step in recovery. So uh, I, I tell patients it's like your brain is like an electrical circuit pan it, uh, panel. So if you get a circuit, a surge, uh, the panel gets disrupted like a stroke, and it is never really the same after. You can fix it pretty good, you can rewire it, but there's always going to be something a little off. And understanding where that miswiring is is kind of where our therapies come in and where our medical providers post-stroke kind of, kind of play a big role in that. All right. And Jennifer, when do you, uh, as occupational therapy, when does that become something that a patient has? So once the patient's deemed medically stable, that's when the orders come in from the doctors and they get all hands on deck. They want OT there, PT, and speech. So OT, occupational therapy, PT, physical therapy, and then speech therapy. Correct. Um, So like Josh said, many different things can happen. There can be weakness on one side of the body. There can be difficulty swallowing, difficulty speaking. There's a cognitive component where they might not understand everything that's being spoken to them. Sometimes we have to do a lot of education amongst each other to say they're saying yes, yes, yes to everything, but they really don't understand what you're saying. So as a team, we can collaborate to you know make sure that everybody's aware that we need to find a different alternative to communicating with them and make sure that the family's being educated, that they might not necessarily be agreeing to something, but that they don't understand. Um, So once that takes place, everyone comes in and we do our assessments and we look from head to toe. We wanna see exactly what's going on with the person. And we can establish goals in the immediate time um, to see, you know, is sitting at the edge of the bed where they're at or can they walk and now we just need to figure out how safe it is. People are being discharged pretty quickly now from the hospital. So the first goal is safety and patient family education to make sure everybody's comfortable and feels aware of what they're going home with. Uh, From that point, the doctors typically will either refer them to inpatient rehab or sometimes they can come directly to outpatient. So we have teams throughout the community that can assist any patient who's had a stroke. I've heard um, that stroke is the leading cause of adult disability. Is that true? And, well, yes. And it is happening in younger people more and more. We have seen some children who have even had some strokes. So, like Josh said, it's not an age-specific thing. This isn't an old person disease. And so there's some amount of a deficit that may be with a person um, forever after a stroke. But then there's some things that maybe would be improved upon, right? Correct. Um, And depending on the severity, we try to be as upfront and as honest as we can with the patient. We typically try to tell people that you're not going to be 100%, but you can get as close to that as you can with the help of therapy. And any time that we feel like a referral is required within the community, we can refer to vision specialists or physiatrists, people who help with tone management. There's different avenues that we can help, but that's really our role is to help them get the best and the most care that they need to recover. 
All right. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with occupational therapist Jennifer Speaker and nurse Josh Onion. They're both part of the stroke team here at Upstate. And we're talking about post-acute care, um, the care that patients receive as they're, as they're recovering from a stroke in the hospital. Um, can we talk about the role of the patient's loved ones in their recovery? Do you involve family members or partners in the recovery? I think that um, something to consider, I know a lot of people get stubborn and want to get out of the hospital, and we are moving patients out of the hospital pretty quickly after a stroke. Normal length of stay is about five days. That's not very long to figure out your medications, your limitations, where you're going to. And to have that, that partner or loved one on board from day one to understand that this is not just the patient, it's now going to be a pod, they need a support system. So getting them together for education and therapies and movements and all that thing from right from the beginning is really key. We see, um, I, I tell patients that they won't, 90 days, three months after their stroke is really where they'll plateau. Uh, generally with their recovery. So after 90 days is they can get the best out of themselves that they can. So they can't see what they on, what they see on day one uh, might not be the same that they see in a week from now to just be patient with themselves and work with each other on that and that team approach. But around 90 days is sort of um, what they they will probably be left with. I, I that's tough to say. We have seen changes. I think things just. Um, the way therapy really wants to look at is we want to help them adapt and adjust. So if their memory's not improving, then we try to build strategies. Um, I think patients get fearful when they hear a timeline like, well, I'm on day 60. I only have 30 days left. So we try to just say one day at a time. You have to think back where you started this whole journey. Um, this wasn't a planned event by any means. So when we can kind of take them day by day and show them the slow progress, their motivation continues. Now, as I understand it, there's two sort of main types of stroke, those caused by a clot that impedes blood flow and those caused when a vessel ruptures. Do you see a difference in the types of uh, deficits depending on the stroke, the type of stroke the person had? or? Yes, and I, I think it's more a matter, again, from therapy point of view, we look at more where the deficit occurred within the brain. If it's the back oh, the of the location. brain, there's okay. going to be vision deficits, and left side of the brain typically impairs the speech. So those are the things that we can kind of keep an eye on. So regardless of the type, it's where it affected the brain. Is So whether it's a blockage or a bleeding type of stroke, it's whatever brain tissue has been damaged in the process is what the therapies focus on. And it seems like it's very individualized that some patients might have trouble, like you said, with vision or um, mobility maybe. Are there things um, that uh, that you look for in all patients, uh, such as depression after a stroke? Um, are there things like that 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 uh, you have that you deal with? Yeah, the patients, uh, those who can express those feelings, um, I, I think it's pretty easy to happen that they get depressed, they get anxious. Like, is this really the way it's going to be forever? Um, the younger people who weren't planning on this, they're still working. So there's a financial aspect to them. So when they start feeling those emotions, we can, again, use outside referrals beyond therapy and get rehabilitation from psychology to kind of deal with those coping mechanisms and trying to learn, again, just adjustment. We are offering support groups in the community as well, and our therapists typically run those. So that's another outlet to kind of assess whether it's truly depression or is it just frustration right or situational based on right well it sounds like both of you have jobs that have a potential to be very gratifying because you're working closely with patients and you can see the progress you know over time I wanted to ask you about the educational pathways um, Josh with nursing how did you end up focusing in in stroke care and what was involved in getting to where you are so for myself, um, I've always been fascinated with what occurs in the brain to make you think and be who you are. Um, since I was you know, done with school, I've always kind of focused my career on brain injury and stroke. So the past I don't know, 15 years of my life, I've really been dealing with head injuries and things like that. So the nursing component was a nice add-on to what I liked about brain care, if you will. So to get a nursing degree... Um, it's really 
you can do anything with nursing nowadays. So it's really uh, exciting. And the role that I have now lets me look at stroke patients as a population versus individuals. So what is our hospital doing with our therapy department to better patients as a whole, you know, that kind of thing. So it's really a, a cool way to get into um, management of stroke patients and stroke care in a hospital level as well as a region because what we do here really affects our our North Country friends and people in the Southern Tier because those patients are coming here as well. So we're making sure. a big impact on a lot of patients across a lot of the state. And that really couldn't be done without my, I guess, passion for head care and what I've done with nursing. So I think that other people in, in Neuroland, as we call it, have a similar feeling and flavor for what happens in the brain and the love for the brain. So that's my little blip on where I got here. And Jennifer, how did you become an occupational therapist? How did you choose that? Uh, I've always been fascinated with helping people. Um, and it's such a devastating disease when someone has a stroke and to see someone completely independent go to completely dependent and to be a part of that process to watch them gain these little individual milestones back it, that's really what I've always been driven by um, to see someone be able to brush their own teeth again or put their own clothes on there's such simple tasks that we take for granted every single day and when they can't do it it just feels so defeating and you've never had to ask your own family, can you help me put my socks on? Right. And so right. when we can teach them to do that, it's I was going to say, there's a, a lot of teaching aspect to your role, it seems like. There is. For the patient and the family. So. Correct. And one of the biggest goals that people have lately, uh, well, not lately, but everybody wants to drive again. And it's kind of one of those hidden components of mm -hmm. cognition that we've been missing or that we're trying to really delve into a little bit further because a lot of patients who are leaving and they can walk independently, we're missing sometimes that cognitive component. So we're really trying to make sure that those patients get into occupational therapy and speech pathology to make sure that we can really dissect and make sure that they're safe to drive. So some of those cognitive issues might not be obvious soon afterward, right? Correct. Sometimes people can walk out the door of our facility but not know where they're walking. Sometimes they can try to cross the street and not realize that the cars are coming and they should stop and wait. So we look at a lot of different components when we're looking at the cognition, you know, the reaction speed, if they can process multiple pieces of information all at the same time. It's, it's a big cognitive task driving it in addition to the physical. I think people associate physical and motor function with a problem with stroke. I can't move my left arm now or I can't move my left leg. I can't walk. But sensation and cognition are huge parts. So if you can move your arm, but you can't feel your fingertips, you can still burn your hand. And, and, and to understand that that's a limitation, you might not have that while you're in the hospital because you're not cooking anything. You don't, you're not in your own environment. So when patients get home, uh, they realize that there are things that we didn't notice in the hospital, um, sensory, physical, or cognitive being the big one. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I want to thank you for your perspective. My guests have been nurse Josh Onion and occupational therapist Jennifer Speaker, both of whom specialize in the care of patients who've had a stroke. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how a child and adolescent psychologist teaches social and coping skills. University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today I'm speaking with a clinical psychologist who hosts some group camps for children and young adults. Dr. Barbara Metelman is a member of the psychology faculty at Lemoyne College and she has a private child and adolescent psychology practice. She's here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio. Thank you for being here, Dr. Metelman. Thank you for inviting me today. 
Tell us about Mystical Acres. So Mystical Acres is a small little horse farm in Pompey, New York. Um, and basically what I do there is basically offer sort of group camps or sort of kind of group therapy sessions for children and adolescents who may need some boosting of skills for social skills or learning how to cope with stress and anxiety. And so it's a horse camp. There's horses are part there of this? There are horses, and there's a donkey named Dash that's there. Uh, he's on the Facebook page for Mystical Acres. All right. Well, I noticed one of your sessions is focused on coping with stress and anxiety. Is this something that you're seeing more frequently in children and adolescents these days? Yes, we are seeing an increase in, in anxiety disorders in children and adolescents. The prevalence rates are right around 8 to 10 percent. We know in general that anxiety is something that can be genetically linked, but also with today's pressures of social media and sort of also lack of sort of sometimes family stability and changes in expectations, the children are more likely to experience anxiety. Things such as tests, taking tests, um, making friends, have, making sure they're saying the right thing to friends or doing the right things, wearing the right clothing can also affect their uh, anxiety levels. So you said 8 to 10% prevalence. So 8 to 10% of children and adolescents have, I guess, diagnosable stress and anxiety? That's correct. Because to me, it seems like it would be higher. Well, it depends what the research study shows and how they're, how they're defining it sometimes. But we're okay. seeing that, again, that's more diagnosable. Again, you may have some anxiety. All of us have some anxiety at any given time. The question is, is it really a level of, of impairment that's being caused by it and worthy of a diagnosis? Or something that's ongoing or chronic? Right, that's correct. Okay. Well, um, how do you go about advising children and adolescents to cope with stress and anxiety? I imagine the techniques are different for a young child versus a young adult. Oh, absolutely. Things are definitely different. But but first of all, the goal is to first find out maybe what some of the triggers are for anxiety, whether it's maybe some for young children, maybe a separation from their parent. So they may be going to school for the first time, going to kindergarten or preschool program, or maybe there's a change in family status. Maybe the parents have separated or they've moved to a new home. Uh, so first of all, is to kind of identify what's kind of causing that. For your older children, maybe it can again be related to friendship issues or social anxiety, or they may have certain fears of taking tests or maybe making a mistake type of thing. Adolescents kind of the same way as well, kind of fear of, of taking tests or fear of perfectionism, that, that they're going to do something wrong, or again, they're having problems with their social relatedness sometimes, which we're seeing a much more increase in social anxiety, I think kind of partially due because we rely so heavily on social media that having a conversation these days is, is coming, coming kind of a lost art sometimes. Having a conversation um, with the idea that it will be reported on social media one way or that you want to present yourself in a way that's favorable, is that what you mean? I think both both of those are very much the part of what kind of goes in through a child's uh, mind these days or an adolescent's mind when they're trying to have a conversation. If they're getting it correct or not correct, who's going to hear, what's going to be said about it, um, how they're going to be evaluated. So that evaluation piece plays a big role in anxiety disorders in children. It's got to be, I can't even imagine. I mean, this generation of children growing up with social media, you and I, you know, this was introduced way after we were past that, but it's got to be really, really tough. That's very true because they often feel they can't escape it and they also feel they need to keep up with it all the time. So also times children and adolescents have a very difficult time putting their phones away, often use the excuse, well, it's a great alarm clock and keep it in their bedrooms, uh, which again, we know that the vibrating phone often keeps children up at night, which means they have poor sleep hygiene, which also then affects their level of anxiety as well. Well, do you have um, guidelines in terms of um, social media use? Does that help? Is that part of the recommended you know, treatment for anxiety and stress? I definitely have guidelines for social media. Sometimes it's hard to enforce those guidelines. But one of the, the um, things I feel very strongly about is that telephones should not be, along with laptops, should not be in a children or adolescent's bedroom at nighttime. Okay. Just to reduce the uh, lure. The lure, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, some stress and anxiety, because um, you mentioned like with children and separation anxiety, is some stress and anxiety normal? Oh, absolutely. We all, get, as little, as, we all have some level of anxiety again, too, and we know that a certain level of anxiety motivates us. For example, we have an upcoming test. It helps us to make sure we study for the test and take care of what we need to take care of. However, too much anxiety, uh, what it does is it starts to interfere with our performance and really causes impairment. So when someone comes to you after they've realized that, that this is impacting their life in a negative way, what are some of the interventions that you um, are able to recommend? So part of the intervention is first we start, first oftentimes started with thinking about helping them identify what's causing the stress or anxiety. We kind of use almost kind of, like kind of a ladder approaching what's kind of a low stressor to a higher stressor, looking again also to try and discover how often they are experiencing that level of stress with that certain particular trigger. 
And then we start trying to think about what makes sense for that child. Some kids and adolescents do very well at more calming strategies, such as learning to breathe deeply and slowly. Other kids do better at more active things, so exercise more, uh, doing more active things like drumming or, again, sort of ways to sort of help them sort of take their mind off of things of that nature. Uh, there are a variety of different techniques can be used from cognitive behavioral therapy approaches to guided imagery to mindfulness to kind of using things such as yoga and, as, as well. And then again, too, the, the good news is, is there are some applications on, on, online on, on phones that can help sort of help teach kids breathing strategies to help them sort of do activities that help them decrease their anxiety. For example, there's one uh, app that basically shows a picture that's black and white, and the child rubs their finger over top of it that comes up to a color, it colors it in. So it kind of becomes a pretty flower or a very pretty uh, scene as well. So there are some positive things, some of the things that are the advances that have been made through technology as well. So is the goal to sort of um, prevent the triggers or to recognize the triggers and act on them? The goal is to recognize the triggers and act on them. We know we can't reduce uh, some of the different triggers. For example, we, kids have to take tests. Kids have to do right. different things as they grow up. And they have to engage in friendships and, and, and social conversations. So the more important thing is how to really sort of regulate our emotions and realize that we are in, in charge of the thoughts that we have and to make sure that we can find ways to sort of reduce those anxious feelings and anxious thoughts. Um, the one thing about anxiety is it oftentimes triggers uh, physiological responses. We often get the sweaty palms, increased uh, heart rate, the breathing gets more shallow and get more rapid. So the goal is to get helping children and adolescents to learn how to control not only the physiological symptoms that go along with anxiety, but also realizing they are in charge of their thoughts and they can think about how they can sort of best manage them. And those, it seems like, are, are easy triggers to recognize. You know, if you feel your palms starting to get itchy or sweaty. Absolutely. So it's, again, it's a very much a very um, present type of disorder. Basically, you can't sort of ignore it very easily. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Barbara Metalman. She's a psychologist and a member of the Lemoyne College um, psychology faculty. And we're talking about, she, she hosts some group camps um, over the summer that are more like um, group therapy in the outdoors. Now, you have a couple uh, of weeks devoted to improving social skill session um, I noticed one is aimed at younger kids and one is aimed at older kids. So what are the social skills that you're working on and how is your approach different for the different weeks? So first of all, we do, it's a very small camp, so we have no more than 10 to 12 children maximum. And I also have a co-therapist uh, that also works with me, Paul Cyrus, who's also a Montessori-trained teacher and a social worker. Um, so what we typically do is do some teaching, direct teaching of skills, talk about kind of what is a social skill, what are some different examples of them. And then we engage in sort of activities that are basically more hands-on. So we'll engage in sort of game-like activities that, that help children learn those skills, learn to, for example, about cooperation, about waiting your turn, about able to sort of making good eye contact when you're speaking to someone. Um, and we also give them also a chance to kind of practice those skills through those different exercises we have. And also to, we also try to challenge them over the three days that we typically see them so they start learning to accept help as well. We might do, for example, a slacker line where they've got to learn to keep their balance as they go across a 50-foot line. Uh, and again, be able to accept someone helps them make sure they don't fall off. And they really that they can ask for support and use support. Uh, we also give some free time to, to make sure the children realize and adolescents realize that there's an opportunity to really just kind of take some time for yourself. Whether it be, again, what we typically offer at the farm is things like feeding the horses or petting them or get engaging in kite flying or an art activity. So again, it's important to think about how you take care of your leisure time activities and how that actually will take care of you as well. And so again, the, the activities vary by the children's ages. Again, we make them much more appropriate for uh, what they're doing, but they kind of serve a little bit that same skill set to be developed, but it's just at development different, different approaches for getting those to, to develop. Well, in terms of improving social skills and teaching those um, lessons to children, is there a role for the parents in this? Absolutely. The more the parents are going to be actively involved in their children's sort of um, treatment or kind of knowledge about what the child needs to work on is really important because whether they're getting a, a camp that sort of focuses on those skills or the child is getting actually individual therapy, parents need to really be part of that, pre that practice as far as helping them to cope with it with the skills and to basically learn how those to use those skills more more regularly because again they, they have to really sort of practice skills in order to, to be able to use them when they need them and that's really something a parent's job to really sort of help to help them sort of practice those skills and use them more often okay i also saw that you have a week uh, devoted to building executive functioning skills so what's that about so executive functioning skills are, are, are skills that really help us to sort of things like 
to plan, to initiate, to organize, to evaluate our efforts. So if you're working on a research report or working to study on it for a test, or even cleaning your, your bedroom, for example, how do you sort of go about it? How do you start, start finding a plan to do it? How do you then initiate it? How do you evaluate your success rate? And how do you make some changes based upon where the needs are? We know the executive functioning uh, skills are oftentimes associated with ADHD or children with learning difficulties, as well as children who may be on the autism spectrum as well. So ADHD, um, attention deficit, hyperactivity. So this might be good for a child who needs um, help with focusing. That's correct. Okay. Well, now getting back to mystical acres, um, being sort of, I can see where it's like group therapy um, goals. What is the value of doing this sort of work outdoors versus in an indoors in an office or something? It allows the kids some freedom. It allows them, again, to, to have a kind of camp experience. Some of these children may not be successful in a more traditional camp where, for example, they may have over 100 to 200 children enrolled in a camp setting. This is a very small uh, group setting. There's only, again, 12 to 15 children typically. Um, and it basically allows them to have a lot of adult um, supervision as well as gives them a choice to do things such as kite flying, fishing in a pond, frog catching, interacting with some of the, the, the farm animals that are there. It seems to be a setting that seems to, to promote sort of uh, skill building in a more relaxed atmosphere as opposed to sitting in a chair and basically having to sort of look at a therapist or, or uh, and sort of answer questions and do sort of things. So it's kind of much more, um, gives a much more relaxed ability to build those skills. It seems like a, a kid who's reluctant to do like a group therapy thing might be a little more enticed to come to something that's uh, a camp. That's what we typically have found. And also, again, too, we, we also can be very flexible. Again, if you're in a large camp setting, let's say, where there's a lot of activities that are planned at a certain time schedule, it's hard to be flexible and say, okay, why don't you sit out for a few minutes because they've got to move on to the next activity, whereas we can be much more flexible as how we can adjust to the needs of that individual child. Does this sort of work have a better outcome when school is not in session? In other words, doing this over the summer, is that like a strategic? Well, if I, we've tried to do things uh, during the school year. Unfortunately, with children's schedules, it's very hard to find time where we get enough children to participate. And a goal of the, is to have enough children so they can sort of learn from each other and realize that they're not alone, uh, whether they're, they're, they're struggling with anxiety issues or uh, planning issues for executive functioning skills. So unfortunately, the summertime presents with a, an opportune time to help to build those skills. So hopefully by school they can kind of use those skills ideally we'd like to offer something during the school year but again schedules kind of really really sort of make that very challenging to do um and these are three day long day camps it's actually from eight from typically they're about eight thirty in the morning till either 12 30 or one o'clock so they're just half a day so kids get a chance to do something this way for a little bit and then spend the rest of the day the way they want to spend it do you think that um three days is enough time to sort of um have an effect or or are you more um intent on planting a seed um is is like new information for these kids coming it can be a little bit of both some kids have come back on repeated years so it's kind of building those skills from prior years or or from their prior therapist um uh, suggestions it oftentimes plants a seed and helps them realize they, they can be in control of different emotions or they can make different changes in how they sort of carry out an activity so i think it helps to plant a seed and helps them to realize that they can be more competent uh, in those skills and is it too late for someone to sign up for this year, or how would they go about doing that? Uh, they can definitely sign up for this year. We still have some openings across the different camp settings. They can either go to the Facebook page, look at uh, Mystical Acres Facebook page to learn more about that, or they can call my private practice number. Uh, the Facebook page would be under Mystical Acres? That's correct. Uh, and these camps take place in July, right? July and August. July and August. Good to know. Let me ask you how you got involved in child psychology. How, what drew you to this profession? <laughs> Um, that's a great question. Um, I always kind of enjoyed working with children and adolescents. I've always had interest in psychology. As a kid, I actually planned, played it around about being a psychologist, so it was something that's kind of been a long-term interest. I really find it a very um, an important role to have. I think a lot of children have a lot of capacity to make improvements in their lives, and it's always kind of fun to work with young children and adolescents to help them sort of be the best person that they can be and provide them with an atmosphere that they can sort of talk about things that are stressful for them in a supportive manner. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here and telling us about this. You're very welcome. My guest has been Dr. Barbara Metalman. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now... Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, 
with this week's selection. Some of our most vivid poems come from the sons and daughters who must witness their parents' decline. Cynthia Noor is a medical writer from rural New Hampshire. Listen to how masterfully she describes her father's final year. Here is In the Tall Grass. Five years later, the doctor told him, Whatever you die of, it won't be cancer. And with those words, my father danced a little jig. I'd chase that sucker out the door with a shotgun. So a year after that, when he got the bad news, he didn't believe it. So much faith he'd put in those words the doctor probably shouldn't have said. But he held no grudge. He'd had a good year. His energy never sapped, his sleep never interrupted by thoughts of recurrences. I sent that sucker to the moon. Turns out, it never left the property, just found a quiet corner, slept in the tall grass, woke like a bear in spring, and danced a little jig. Next, Jim Farfaglia from upstate New York recasts the traditional learning how to drive lesson in his poem, Driving Lesson. This must be the hardest part, me in the driver's seat, taking you from doctor to doctor. And although we've made this trip countless times, you insist on telling me where to turn and where to park. Voice useless, but your hand signals loud and clear. I feel you watch my every move. I'm 16 again and never good enough. Back then, I wanted to tell you off. But these days, watching your world head down a dead end, sitting behind the wheel, I make a few mistakes just for you. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how two scientists, thousands of miles apart, each discovered an important compound that shaped our understanding of blood pressure. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.